Good morning. Ecclesiastes 6:10 through 7:14. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these days? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Hope y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank you guys so much for being here. It's a joy. Got a couple of things for you in the event that you just stepped in or didn't hear Emma. We're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses, uh, verse 10, and going all the way through chapter 7, verse 14. And so while you open or load your Bibles, a uh, couple of quick things. Number one, if you're new, we'd love to connect with you and just have the opportunity to pray for you if you would allow us. There are these connect cards on the chairs. Uh, fill one out, leave it in the back uh, in the connect desk, and we'll, we'll connect with you. It'd be our honor. In addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to gift you a Bible. We'd love to gift you God's Word. So let us know, and that is our gift to you. Two more things. I'm going through these fairly quickly. Right? We uh, are here at the winery all of a sudden. Right? Izzy mentioned this at the beginning of service. The incubator had some building maintenance that we could not get around, a.k.a. the AC is out at the incubator. Uh, and so they'd been working on it all week. Uh, we were hoping that it would be taken care of by Friday. And then Friday at five o'clock, we got the word and started making all of the changes, which leads me to the last, uh, the last point. Uh, I am so incredibly thankful for our staff and volunteers who, remember, we received the news on Friday. Yeah, you can give them a big hand. You, like, you could do really loud. It's okay. <laughs> 
Um, and so we received the news Friday at five, had an event here last night, and then had all of our volunteers and staff team pretty much just get bare bones equipment, do what we are experiencing. And so I am incredibly thankful for our uh, staff and volunteers. And so as you see them serving, whether it's the band, especially kids or those with setup, make sure you say thank you because they did such an amazing job getting up earlier than usual, being here and setting all of this up for us. Well, with all that being said, let's dig into our time. I heard a pastor once say, our greatest freedom is when we are lovingly lost in the will of God. The will of God. That's something that can bring about several thoughts. For many, it's a true reminder of peace that God is not only in control, but deeply cares for us, our heart and our good. For others, the will of God brings a little bit of pushback. God may be sovereign, but why? Why does he need to be sovereign? Those are good questions to bring before God and the people of God. It's also equally important to ponder the state of your heart in the midst of those questions. Is it control that you crave? Is it your good above others? Is it that you are simply trying to be God? In the end, the will of God for us is all about certainty. Whether it's in the moments of peace or a struggle for control, it is all about certainty. Certainty that we want to have in the good days and in the bad days. And in our text today, Solomon, who's the writer of Ecclesiastes, will open up our section with a series of rhetorical questions, all of which will be answered in chapter seven. But before digging into our text, here's our main point for today. God's will should not be measured according to bad days or good days, but by his goodness in spite of bad days or good days. Once more, God's will should not be measured according to our bad days or our good days, but by his goodness in spite of those days. So let me pray, and then we'll begin our time in chapter 6, verses 10 and 12. Let me pray. God, we once more come before you and thank you for the opportunity and flexibility uh, to meet with you here at the winery, to gather, to sing praises to your name, and at the same time to examine your word. Father, my prayer is that through your word, you would comfort us, that you would convict us, God, that you would challenge us. In light of all of that, conviction, comfort, and challenge, God, I pray that we would be drawn to you with questions, probably more questions than answers, that we would be drawn to you. This morning, may your word be sweeter than the taste of honey. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have a lot of ground to cover, so here we go. We're going to start in chapter 6 on these last two verses, 10 through 12. Here, uh, Solomon provides us with uh, a list of rhetorical questions. And even though in the text, that's 11 and 12, even though we're presented with three questions, in reality, they are two main questions. In verse 10, the writer, that is Solomon, 
is thinking about what has happened and, and who has created what has happened. So let's look at verse 10 briefly. He says, whatever has come to be has already been named. In other words, he's saying whatever has been created is already created, and there's nothing that man can do about that, whether it's good, bad, ugly, beautiful, straight, crooked, what has ever been created has been named, and whatever has been named, man can't do anything about it. And so he continues. Remember, when we're looking at Ecclesiastes, we're looking at like his personal journal. And he says, and it is known what man is. That is, the good, the bad, the deep, the dark, the secret, the things that we don't want to talk about, the things that we try to hide from one another or uh, 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 ourselves, God knows. Right, when he says, whoever has created man knows man. And so God knows you better than you think, better than you even want to admit. The good, the bad, the deep, the dark, the secretive, God knows, and he knows you, and he knows the depths of your heart. <laughs> he concludes that man is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. In other words, whatever has been created has been named, and because it's been named, <clears throat> because it's been named God knows the, the heart of that, that creature. God knows what is good, what is bad, what is dark, what is deep, and at the same time, what can man do about it? How, how can you push back and argue on that? And so these are just reflections that he's having in verse 10. And so it leads him into verse 11 and 12 to ask a couple of questions. And so he says, the more words, the more vanity. So what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man? Well, he lives few days of, of his vain life, which, which passes like a shadow. In a nutshell, he's asking two questions. In light of these reflections, he's asking two questions. Who knows what is good for us? And who can tell what will happen to us? These are the two questions that Solomon asks. And so as he asks those questions, instead of providing empty words of comfort, that's what he means in verse 11, when he says the more words, the more vanity, he's not just giving us hot air and puffing us up with words. Instead of providing empty words of comfort, Solomon walks us into a series of Proverbs in chapter 7. And as we transition to chapter 7, in verses 1 through 12, he's going to answer the first question. Remember, the first question is, who knows what is good for us? He's going to answer the first question, and we're going to break that question up into two parts, the heart of man and the wisdom of man. The second question, who can tell what will happen to us, the second question will be answered in verses 13 and 14 as we consider the sovereignty of God within each of our days, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so, let us consider the first question. What is good for us by examining the heart of man? This is in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7. Well, Solomon's writing, in case you hadn't realized, is very raw, he's very honest, and sometimes a little cynical. Sometimes, or nonetheless, as we transition into this second half of Ecclesiastes, we begin to see more proverbial language, and we begin to see Solomon point us to gaze upon the beauty of God a lot faster, and at the same time, the honesty of his words never leave the paper, and so we can be very appreciative of how raw and honest Solomon is, even as he pushes us to look and gaze upon God. 
In this first section, Solomon is going to help us examine the heart of man through death. And so let me point out a couple of things before we look at verses 1 through 6. Not many people like to talk about death. I'm just going to let you know right now, the theme of death is going to come back up in chapter 9, and we'll talk more about it at length there. But in this entire section, in verses 1 through 12, there are two key words that really unpack what Solomon is trying to say. Those key words are the heart and wisdom. The word heart in this section is referenced about five times, while the word wisdom is repeated about seven times. Here, the word heart refers to or has more to do with thinking than feeling. It's the place where we reflect and our decisions are made. And so the decision one has to make is deciding between wisdom and folly. And if the question is, well, what is wisdom? The way we've defined it has been wisdom is spiritual depth perception. It is me applying uh, discernment to uh, the consequences of my decision in the future and then letting that actually make my decision. And so now that we have that, let's look at what death can teach us about our heart. When it comes to death, the Bible tells us that it is an enemy. Paul says this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, says that it's an enemy. And most of the time when we consider death, even when we consider death from the pulpit on Sunday mornings, death is often viewed with an eternal perspective. And that's true, not knocking that, not changing that, right? For the Christian, death is simply a servant. It is a vehicle into glory and the presence with the Lord Jesus. But here in Ecclesiastes 7, we learn that death is also a teacher and an evangelist. In a series of Proverbs, God through Solomon is asking us to consider through death what you give your heart to and how you actually consider the nature of your heart. And so beginning with verse one, Solomon, through the example or analogy of death, forces us to consider or to confront our character. Verse one, a good name is better than precious ointment, the day of death better than the day of birth. The first thing Solomon wants us to learn is our character, our integrity, our heart. He's saying, man, some people worry more about trends and fads and fashion. More people worry about the external, but not enough actually look at or challenge by the condition of their heart and their character, their integrity, their character. That is, who they are and what they can be relied on to do. Their integrity, who they are in spite of who they're with. And that's what Solomon is forcing us to consider. He says, when you face death, when you attend a funeral, you're forced to think about that. You're forced to think about your character. One scholar says it this way. This is not on your notes, so you get to just listen. One scholar says it this way. Death is the great mentor for diligence, sobriety, love, generosity, reverence, and, and humility. Death forces the most profound questions to be asked but mercilessly mocks those who sleep through its lessons. See, death sobers us up and forces us to consider what we've given our lives to, what our reputation is, and how will we stand before God. 
Solomon continues by saying, hey, the day of death is better than birth. And you would ask, why is that better? Because at the day of your birth, everyone is smiling, everyone is laughing, and everyone is dreaming of your potential, of what you can become, the opportunities that you're going to have, the experiences that you're going to walk through. Everybody's dreaming for you. But when it comes to the day of death, your life has now been fulfilled. And so the question is, what will people say about you? What will they see that you gave your life to? What will they see that you have invested into? In short, Solomon is saying that a coffin is a greater teacher than a crib. The second thing that death teaches us is that there are two kinds of people. So now he's forcing us to reflect. We're looking at our character, and now he's saying, I want you to reflect on, there's, on two kinds of people in the face of death. There are the wise, and then there are the fools. So let's start with the fools. This is verse 2 through 4 and verse 6. Okay. When he considers the fool, you're going to see phrases like the house of feasting, laughter, and the house of mirth. Let's read through one or two of these briefly. He goes on to say, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. And so here's what Solomon is saying. The fool looks at death and not only doesn't like it, doesn't want to reflect, the fool, when looking at death, rather dive into escapism. And so he uses these three images of the house of feasting, laughter, and mirth. So when it comes to the house of feasting, he's saying, the fool who is at a party, and I want you to consider, if you remember, back in chapters one and two, Solomon is trying to pursue life apart from God, trying to find meaning of life apart from God. So he's like partying, he's living it up, he's doing all of the things. And so you could almost sense that he's reflecting on that. And essentially, when it comes to the house of laughter or the house of feasting, what Solomon is saying, a fool who is diving into feasting and partying and escapism and hedonism, they're never gonna ask life's hardest questions. They don't consider some of life's frustrations. The fool who is chug-a-lugging race car water, right, NASCAR water, right, the fool doesn't have that friend who's actually going to challenge them with their heart because they don't wanna reflect on death. The second kind of fool is the one who dives into laughter. Now, here, there's nothing wrong with laughter. Let me just say that, right? Like, you could read that and be like, oh my gosh, laughter is a sin. Yes. No, it's not. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with laughter. But what Solomon means is that laughter fades away. Eventually, laughter fades away. And I want you to look at verse 6 very quickly. I'm curious as to your feedback, not in this service, afterward, right? The feedback, here he goes. He says, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. In the Hebrew language, that's supposed to rhyme, but it doesn't really rhyme in our translation. One scholar says it this way, like nettles crackling under kettles. That's the best that he could do. Here's what Solomon is saying when it comes to laughter. Solomon is saying the laughter of fools is of no use in helping us gain a heart of wisdom. 
Right? Because they're laughing it off. They're trying to get away. They're trying to escape. And we actually don't gain any wisdom because they don't take it seriously or they want to deflect or they want to escape to their own thing. Finally, he talks about the house of mirth. <clears throat> this is, where is this, verse 4? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth. The word mirth is really just amusement. He's saying the fool runs toward empty and earthly wisdom. They willingly lose themselves in amusement and entertainment. And so the fool doesn't want to be confronted with what they don't like. The fool doesn't want to reflect on their heart. The fool doesn't want to consider God and the works of God. But there's the contrast. Now there's the wise. And two of the phrases that stand out are the house of mourning and sorrow. And to be, to be clear, Solomon isn't trying to be morbid. He's just an emo, right? He's not trying to be morbid. He's simply saying that when we are touched by death personally, we're not the same. Whether it's the death of a loved one, a family member, a friend of friends, we can learn a lot about our hearts. We can see how others have been shaped by death. We can see what other people have ultimately given their lives to. And in the house of mourning and in sorrow, you and I are simply more reflective. You're not going to think about life's hardest questions at a party on Saturday. But when you're faced with the death of someone, all of a sudden things are put in perspective. And that's what he's saying. The third thing that death teaches us is humility. This is in verse 5. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Solomon is saying, when you are rebuked, that's a good thing. And death, death rebukes you. Death rebukes you because, again, you're forced to confront your heart. You are forced to examine whether you are proud and arrogant or humble. But in real time, a rebuke also forces you to reflect on your arrogance. And so he says rebuke is a good thing. Why? Because you and I, as much as we don't want to admit it, and you may never put this on your Facebook status, right? Because when it comes to rebukes, we're often shaped by them. Like the good, for example, in, in, in marriages often come from the rebuke of, older, wiser individuals who really push husbands and wives when they're single, when they're engaged, year one or month six or year five or whatever that is, right? Like the good that you see in marriages is often comes as a result of rebuke because you were doing it foolishly and then you were rebuked. Solomon says that when it comes to rebuke, someone who is humble. Someone who is wise is going to be humbled by that rebuke. Someone who isn't wise is going to hear the song of fools. In other words, they want to go listen to things that are meaningless and brainless and kind of soak themselves in that. Right? Like rather than listen to the rebuke that you have for them, 
or for you, you, you want to go listen to Blink-182, whatever. <laughs> right? Or like, I'll do another one, right? Like, you, you get rebuked and you get so sad about being rebuked that you listen to like Vicente Fernandez and, and all these like sad songs, right? Yeah, that, what, what Solomon is saying is like, yeah, that's worthless. You just didn't like it, Right? I mean, think about, for instance, if rebukes actually shape us, think about Peter. Peter, the guy who walked on water more than you and I have, the guy who tried to rebuke Jesus and failed miserably, right? Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus publicly restores him. Then he preaches this great sermon at Pentecost. And then later in Galatians, we found out that Peter and Paul had some rub, and Paul calls Peter out and rebukes him again. Peter is the one who wrote at least two letters of the, uh, of the New Testament, right? Rebukes shaped Peter. They actually helped to develop his character. They led him to pursue the way of wisdom. They forced him to be humble. When was the last time you were rebuked and actually shaped by it? I didn't ask if you liked it. I don't know anybody that does. My wife and I were talking about this over the weekend. Nobody likes being rebuked, so that's not the question. So throw that in the trash. The question is, what did you do when you were rebuked? See, when you're rebuked, you're forced to actually confront your heart, your attitude, your sin, your responsibility whether it's what you're doing with your life now or simply because you've been unkind and selfish. What do you do when you're rebuked? Death is not simply an enemy. Death is a teacher. Death is an evangelist. In response to the first question, what's good for us? Solomon answers by having us reflect on our heart through death. Death has the capacity to teach us so much about ourselves. That doesn't mean, though, that the experience of learning about ourselves is always fun and joyful. Death teaches us that we are finite. Death addresses the heart of man by forcing us to consider our character, the way of wisdom or folly, and our humility. Death teaches us more about the way we live and love than a party ever will. Now let's look at the wisdom of man. This is verses 7 through 12. And here, two quick reminders. Number one, we're still in the first question. What's good for us? We're still in the first question. Number two, this is going to be a similar breakdown to verses 1 through 6. All right, so we got that out of the way. So the question, what's good for us? Well, Solomon answers by having us think through the value you and I have on wisdom. Earlier in the book, we saw that Solomon pursues the way of wisdom, and even that sometimes had was vanity. But that doesn't mean that wisdom is useless. And so here, Solomon teaches us that that wisdom is actually a gift, but it has limitations, and we must be aware of those limitations. And so he gives us four examples of the limitations on wisdom. And so we're just going to walk through them, and then I'll summarize the whole thing at the end. We're going to walk through money, patience, anger, nostalgia, okay? So here's the first one. This is verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Ultimately, what Solomon is saying is, hey, wisdom apart from God can be corrupted. The saying, everyone has a price, 
there's a reason that saying exists. In short, Solomon says, though corruption is real, and, and when, it comes to, uh, when it comes to corruption, you and I may not be immune to it, what we need to do instead is be steadfast, we need to guard our heart, and we need to be the kind of people that aren't bought. When he uses the word oppression, this means with, uh, it deals with the loss of money. And when he uses the word madness, it, it's referring to panic and a quick fix. In other words, when an individual loses money or loses all of their money, they go into a frenzy and a panic, they go into madness, and so what they start doing is making really extreme decisions to recover the money or to recover their situation, and what ends up happening is that they end up falling into corruption or extortion. That's, that's the example he's giving. The principle is, man, when you lose something and you go into this panic, you actually go into madness. The second example is patience. This is verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Verses 8 and 9 are a little similar, but I'll give you a little distinction. Verse 8 is simply saying, or Solomon is simply saying this, anything, and this sounds cliche, but give me a second, anything worthwhile takes time. Anything worthwhile takes time, it takes attention, and in the end, it actually helps you grow. Whether it's to be more patient, whether it's to grow in your maturity, or both, Solomon is saying, when you pursue patience, you're an individual who doesn't bounce. The impatient person doesn't like the way things are, and so they bounce. Is that who you are? All of this funnels back to character, the way of wisdom, and even humility. Do you bounce? Do you bounce because you don't like the way things are? Do you bounce because you just don't like the situation? Verse 9, he talks about anger. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger, check it, lodges into the heart of fools. Anger communicates that you're against something. Right? That's just what it does. It communicates that you're against something. Anger is known as the moral emotion. And there's nothing wrong with being against something, especially when it's something that is unrighteous or, or corrupt or injustice or sinful. But the real issue here in verse 9 isn't simply that you have a short fuse. It's that anger is who you are. That is your character. And as a result of your character and your integrity, it leads you to the way of folly. And because you walk in the way of folly, you're actually not humble. You're very proud. You're very arrogant. And it's not simply that you're impatient and that you bounce. It's that you're angry and you destroy. Are you an angry person? Number four, Verse 10, nostalgia. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. In the film, Napoleon Dynamite, one of the most beloved and often tragic and relatable characters, his name is Uncle Rico. And Uncle Rico, if you have not seen this fantabulous film, if you have not seen this film, Uncle Rico is living to see the glory days. While eating lunch with his nephew Kip, 
He says, back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. And then he bets Kip. How much you want to bet I can throw a football over them mountains? He says, yeah, if coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we would have been state champions, no doubt, no doubt in my mind. And then as the conversation progresses, you see sadness come upon his face because he's realized that's not the life he actually lives. Likewise, in the movie, The Replacements, Keanu Reeves, who plays a a quarterback, summarizes his team's experience saying they got what every athlete dreams of, a second chance. Do you live in nostalgia? Some of you are nodding no. I'll show you that you are. It doesn't have to be this kind of cinematic relatability, but maybe you have found yourself saying, things aren't like what they used to be. Maybe you've said something like, it's just getting worse. Things used to be different. Newsflash, we live in a fallen world and social media doesn't help. In fact, what social media does help with, it helps with showing how fallen we are. Just go back and look at your posts. How, how, many, how many of you, I don't want to see your hands, don't interact, right? How many of you repost memories? Even if it's your kids. Oh, look how young, young and cute they used to be. Yeah, that's nostalgia. I don't have nostalgia, whatever. Right? You, nostalgia is going to the Friday night game and seeing this one section of people with Letterman's from the high school they graduated from like 15, 20 years ago. That's nostalgia. Or that they wear it on campus at UTRGV. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's get back on track. It's enough fluff. The point of nostalgia, let me, I'll, I'll say it this way. The point of nostalgia isn't simply that you miss the glory days. It's not just that you miss the former days. It's that you're longing for something. Like, let's be reflective about nostalgia for a little bit. Like, all jokes aside, let's be reflective about it a little bit. It isn't simply missing the glory days or the former days. It's longing. It's longing for something that was better, something that is more beautiful. See, what's pulling on your heart in nostalgia, what's pulling on your heart more than the past is actually the future. It's actually heaven. It's actually eternity. It's home, a sense of belonging, no more pain and perfection. That's what's actually pulling on our hearts when we're nostalgic. The problem with nostalgia, however, is that we want to stay in the past, and when we do, we deny the presence of God in present time. That's the problem with nostalgia. And so earlier I mentioned that we, we have a habit of turning toward escapism. And in a way, verses 1 through, te- 1 through 12, that's all it covers. I want you to think about this for a minute. Laughter and feasting, what we looked at, laughter and feasting is a way to escape character, humility, and integrity. 
Corruption is a way to escape personal responsibility. Impatience is a way to escape the reality of the way things are and you just don't like it. Anger is a way to escape how to actually deal with and address certain situations, reality, and people. Nostalgia is a way of escaping the present to hang out in the past and not deal with the future. This is all escapism. And so it begs the question, like, what do we do with wisdom if you and I are prone to this? Solomon answers in verse 11 and 12. He says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom, and that's where we're going to focus on, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So this is what Solomon's doing in verse 12 particularly. It's 11 and 12, but particularly verse 12. Solomon compares wisdom to money in the sense of just like you have a savings account for when an emergency happens, a rainy day hits, something happens and you need to withdraw so that you can take care of it. He's saying wisdom is kind of like that. The one who grows in wisdom, the one who has a heart of wisdom can actually pull and, and use it in a way to look at what's coming. They can actually see the temptation of escapism. But at the end, wisdom is still limited apart from God. This is why Solomon in Proverbs opens up by saying the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom is a gift, but wisdom apart from God has its limitations, particularly in the areas of money, patience, anger, and nostalgia. So wisdom is kind of like a, like a, I don't know what you would call it, I guess a savings account. You can pull from it to apply what you have going on. When things go wrong, when there's panic, when there's temptation, you can pull from this savings account that is wisdom. That's how it protects you like money. And so with that, we turn to our second and final question. Who can tell us what will happen to us? In other words, who can predict what's going to happen to us? Solomon answers this second question in verses 13 and 14. Let's read them briefly. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made, one, made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find, find out anything that will be after him. So the question, who can tell what will happen to us? Solomon answers by saying, only God knows. Only God knows. And because it is only God who knows, it is Him who we turn toward. Not simply to get answers to our questions. The truth is you're not always going to get the answers to the questions that you have. But to find shelter in His will, in His sovereignty. Twice Solomon uses the word consider. The word consider is to, uh, to place deep thought and attention on something. 
And so he says, consider what God has done. Consider who God is and look at your season, look at your situation, good, bad, or ugly, straight or crooked, it's been set by the sovereign will of God. Therefore, in prosperity, on those good days, be joyful, have fun, enjoy them, laugh loudly, walk wisely, praise God and cultivate thankfulness and generosity. In the days of adversity, the truth is our instinct, our instinct is for God to change our situation, but our prayer really should be, God, change me. Both days, the one of prosperity and the one of adversity, both of those days are under his sovereign grace and design. It's not about knowing the future with certainty or the core of the good days and the bad days, but about trusting God who holds the future. Martin Luther said it this way, let us therefore be content with the things that are present and commit ourselves into the hand of God who alone knows and controls both the past and the future. We've learned a great deal from death and from wisdom you may also come to a place where you say, man, well, life isn't fair. And the fact is that things that are crooked should and will make us grieve. They'll make us upset. They'll make us frustrated. What you and I ought to take in that is in the midst of that, we should turn to God. We should pour our burdens out to him. The complaint that we have, the aches that we have, the things that are the way and they shouldn't be that way, we should pour that out before the Lord. And once more, as I've told you, just because Solomon provides us with an honest word doesn't mean that it is the final word from God. A passage like this points us to the Lord Jesus when, where like you and I who prefer things to be straightened out, Jesus cried out to the Father saying that if there was any way he could make the path to the cross straight and not crooked, he would love that. But there wasn't another way. Jesus considered God in that moment. He saw that the crooked way to the cross was the only way for atonement, for his death to account for our sin in our place. And so therefore, Jesus went to the cross, suffered the crooked cross, and trusted in the Father and his timing, so much so that on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead so that you and I would have eternal life and new life and a new heart and new desires. And right now, Jesus ascended back into heaven and reigns and rules over everything that is under his sovereign grace and rule, and he is alive and well and seated at the right hand of the Father. You and I love certainty because we like control. But let us consider God who makes all things straight in his time. Don't try and straighten out what's crooked, but trust in the sovereign king who makes all things new in his own good time. May we be a people, may we be a people who reflect deeply and get lost lovingly in the will of God, for that is the safest place for us to be. And so as we conclude, as we close, Christian, 
What's control look like for you in the good, in the bad, and in the ugly? What does it say about your character? What does it say about what you believe about wisdom? If you find yourself in a hard season, the Lord knows. He has said both on many occasions that, that the, the Lord will not forsake you. In fact, the, the beauty of the gospel is that God makes straight lines out of crooked sticks. And so whether you're in a really hard season or in a really good season, a season of adversity or a season of prosperity, come before the Lord. Submit and surrender yourself before the Lord. You may not get all the answers, but you will receive shelter. And if you don't know, Christ, if you don't know Jesus, what does control look like? What does control look like for you? And how's it going for you? The simple truth of the gospel is, man, Jesus makes all things new in his own good time. And that might rub with you, but that is because the foundation of your belief is you. And so let me submit to you to turn to the Lord and surrender to him, that he is willing to pardon all who turn to him and give them rest. Church, God's will should not be measured according to bad days or good days but by his goodness in spite of good days or bad days. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are good. And in Jesus, you you came among us as light shining in darkness. Lord, if we're, we're honest, when it comes to your sovereign grace, once more, for some it's peaceful, for some it's not. And so, Lord, may we confess that in, in those moments, it's, it's really our heart of distrust toward you. Perhaps it's hard for us to believe that you are good, that your good news is good. And sometimes we are guilty of closing our eyes to your glory, to your gospel, and to your grace. So God, as we come before you would, you, would you forgive us of our distrust, of our disbelief, of our displeasure? Would you renew our hope? Would you renew our hope so that we would receive and experience the fullness of your grace, so that we would live in the truth of Jesus, whether it would be a good season a season of prosperity or a season of adversity. God, earlier we prayed that you would comfort, convict, and challenge hearts. God, the truth of your grace is that through your spirit you've done that and you do not leave us there. That you meet us where we are with your grace. 
So may we be sustained by your grace. May we be comforted by your grace. May we be lovingly challenged by your grace. And may the meditation of our heart and the words of our mouth be pleasing to you today. Amen.